decisions um, like genius. You know, Thomas Edison said that genius was 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Well, the same is true of decisions. We can obsess about making the right decision and getting all the input and working through a, a, a thoughtful process, which is all good, but we can sometimes miss the fact that the results will come only after the decision is made and that 99% of the work uh, will become after uh, that point in time. On this episode of the Creator Community, we'll meet Jennifer Davis, Chief Marketing Officer of Learfield, and now published author. We'll follow Jennifer's journey of learning and growth as a C-suite member of several high-profile companies like Amazon. We'll learn what it takes to be a successful leader across industries and how having a process for decision-making is a powerful tool in today's world of an ever-increasing pace of business. We'll hear her practical advice on leading a culture of well-made decisions and her roadmap to make it all reality. Jennifer's journey has led her to publishing her new book, Well-Made Decisions. Check out the show. Welcome to the second season of the Creator Community. This is a new podcast series from book publisher New Degree Press, or NDP. I'm your host, John Saunders, founder of Ford Advisory Solutions. This show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. This year, NDP will cross over 1,000 published authors. In this show, we get to know the authors and their books, as well as give you a behind-the-scenes look at their journey. We'll find out what it takes to bring a book from idea to being available wherever you buy books online. It's no easy task, but certainly doable. Today, I have with me Jennifer Davis, author of Well-Made Decisions, Pro Tips for Finishing the Decisions You Start, former Amazon marketing executive and now chief marketing officer at Learfield. Jennifer's book has an early September 21 targeting publish date and will be available wherever you buy books online. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. You know, if we could start out maybe a little bit about your background. So really, uh, obviously, a lot of work in the marketing field and have made your way to the C-suite. Congratulations. Uh, you know, could you share with us, you know, how did you navigate your journey? How did you land where you are? Uh, sure. Well, uh, depending on how far back you want to go, I parlayed an internship out of college into my first job at a, a software startup. And that kind of set me on a path to work in technology. So I've worked in published software, software as a service, electronics, uh, devices, um, and now I'm working for a technology and media company in the sports industry, uh, specifically college sports. And so um, it's been a really interesting journey that has taken me, as you said, into marketing roles, but also uh, into a wide variety of other business roles from um, strategy, uh, customer experience and service, um, product roles as well. And that thread gave me broad exposure to companies of different sizes and uh, business decisions across a wide variety of types of decisions. And again, it is culminating together here in this book, I think, in a really uh, interesting and powerful way. I mean, certainly a, a very diverse background, but some common threads for sure in technology and marketing and certainly creativity. Uh, I love that. Maybe before we talk about the book, you could share a little bit about your journey, you know, given your demanding schedule. How did you, one, how did you find the program and how did you fit this whole thing into your life? Well, I was definitely inspired by a couple of uh, friends of mine, um, uh, 
uh, Morgan Weider and uh, Melissa Porter, who both recently published books. And, and Morgan specifically, I talked to her about her process and how she had done it because both of us had talked about, wouldn't it be great to someday <laughs> write a book? And uh, she did it. And I was so proud of uh, not only the finished work, but her dedication to it. And so she turned me on to the Creator Institute and, and I started working within the scaffolding, I would say, of the program, which provided, again, a great structure uh, for me to do it. But ultimately, <laughs> the thing that pushed me over to, to really say yes and to do it was the pandemic. You know, other people may have, I don't know, taken up a new fitness routine or learned to make sourdough bread, but I wrote a book. And so it was this bucket list plus quarantine equals book. <laughs> Some people got kittens, puppies, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Absolutely. Well, uh, Morgan Widener needs uh, maybe ready. Might be time for a trophy for her for uh, the number of folks she's referred to this program. The list is getting pretty long. That's fantastic. I've gotten to know her a bit. She's she's awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's let's chat. On this. So, thank you for sharing that context. Uh, maybe a little bit about the book. You know, what is, what are the general? You know, what is the book about? What what do people want to know about the book uh, from a general sense? Absolutely. A lot has been written about decision-making, um, leadership, and, and the like, but I found something kind of missing from my own bookshelf and my own reading and rumination on the topic, and that was the importance of executing ideas to make them right, not just making the right decision. And I feel like a lot of what has been written and people who deserve their Nobel Prizes for economics, um, for decision science, really um, emphasize the process that goes into making a decision, but can um, gloss over perhaps the steps that come after that. And so I started to think about this more deeply, do some my my own reflection on my career, as well as conversations with other leaders across different industries. And what I the common theme that came out was that decisions, um, like genius, you know, Thomas Edison said that genius was 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Well, the same is true of decisions. We can obsess about making the right decision and getting all the input and working through a, a, a thoughtful process, which is all good, but we can sometimes miss the fact that the results will come only after the decision is made and that 99% of the work uh, will become after uh, that point in time. And so uh, it's, it's hopefully encouraging leaders to be empowered, to move more swiftly and uh, to put as much emphasis on implementation as they do on the decision itself. Right. Decisions oftentimes can maybe if I'm hearing you correctly, there's sort of the easy part, as you said, 1% of the whole journey, then you have to mobilize a, you know, army of people to make it happen. So, yeah. you know, how, how do, how do leaders create businesses that can make and implement these types of decisions, particularly as the world moves faster and faster and we have to react much more quickly as this competitive, competitive uh, uh, issues arise? Well, there are a lot of things that leaders can do to create the environment for high velocity decision making and the right kind of context for implementation. Uh, several of the themes that I highlight in the book, and I won't be able to go through into all of them, but is really creating a, a culture of um, 
candor and cooperation and high talent density that will lead to having the right people in the room uh, to, to make decisions. I think that is often overlooked. Um, the importance of writing down the strategy so that it can be socialized and so that uh, everybody can be mobilized effectively. And then after the decision is made, it's a, you know, a, a kind of a cocktail of communication and candor and reflection and the ability to um, compromise and pivot and be constantly learning. And in order to do that while lowering the stakes of some of these decisions, it's very important to recognize the kind of decision that's being made. When I was with Amazon, we spent a lot of time talking about whether a decision was a one-way door or a two-way door decision. And this means that a, a one-way door decision is, is a, as the name implies, kind of locks behind you. <laughs> if you go on the other side of the door and don't like what you see, you can't easily get back because you've set customer expectations or you've invested a lot of money or whatever the circumstances might be that make it feel more permanent. And a two-way door decision is, you know, like the turnstiles at the department store, um, you can change your mind. And we often will mistake two-way door decisions for one-way door decisions. And once you realize what would it take to, to reverse this, if we don't like what we see on the other side, and if if still the decision feels too impactful and too high stakes, then I talk in the book about how to install hinges, how to think about experimentation, pilots, small tests that would allow you to gain confidence before you go through that one-way door. And so these are all tools in the toolbox of a leader that they can pull out and apply to different situations. And when they do that regularly with, with discipline, they can find that the whole organization can be propelled. And companies who have a reputation for being wildly innovative, it isn't these big bang ideas. It's a constant diet of small experiments over time uh, executed rapidly that lead to those results. I love the metaphor of the two-way door, right? It gives you some latitude, some optionality, as opposed to we walked through the door, it's closed. Now we're stuck with whatever it is we came up with. You know, you talked a lot about culture in there, which I think is a fascinating one and sometimes gets glossed over when you hear interviews and whatnot. You know, what are some of the key elements you see, Jennifer, is, you know, creating that culture, that environment where people can feel comfortable in this two-way door circumstance rather than sort of the old school mindset of, oh, we came, here's this idea, we're going to run into the ground and either it's going to work or it's not. You know, how do you create that environment as a leader? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to trust and um, how you cultivate trust in an organization. And again, from the perspective of a leader, whether that's a, a leader on a team or a leader of a project or the leader of a whole company, a CEO or a, a board of directors, it, it's very important to put the right people in the organization. And so um, I, I have been inspired a lot by the work that Netflix has done, thinking about high talent density in their organization and seeing that firsthand um, and being able to apply that in, in other settings. It, um, it, it That's a really powerful kind of foundation is to have the right people in the organization with the right skills and, and competencies. And then to be in an environment where you are actively 
obsessing about your customer, your client, your partner, whoever you're developing your products, services for, it's very important that their needs and their um, problems get elevated. Um, a lean consultant told, told me once that uh, you have to fall in love with the problem. And when you do that, an interesting thing happens in your organization. Rather than being on the opposite side of the table with a peer or a colleague or a different department or function in the organization, you can move to the other side of the table and you're facing that problem together. And that posture change, um, which comes about when you put your customers you know, in that forefront, when you put those partners and customers first, it aligns the organization um, in a way that is really, really powerful. And it gives everybody in the organization the vocabulary, the common vocabulary to um, hold each other accountable, call each other out, but in a trust-building way to, to achieve together the best outcomes for, for the customer. And uh, um, that can be a very powerful thing and it permeates the culture. And if if it doesn't, if if the leaders ever take their foot uh, you know, off the gas <laughs> or ever lower their standards on that, then things can start to fracture. Um, but as, as long as the organization is focused on the customer, um, that it, it implies a lot of things about how business is done on a day-to-day basis. I love that. I think it was maybe year 11 that took that quote a little further, which was uh, don't fall, uh, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. But what he really meant was your solution, right? We have an idea. I have to make this happen. It's my idea and my career, my ego, all of these things are riding on it. And I love this, this, this framework you laid out, which is let's start with the customer, our audience, right? Who's, who are we help serving here and how do we make them happy? And then how do we create a mission, a vision that helps us get there and then create this environment of trust where we can all get in this together. And uh, I love all the metaphors you're using. Put us on the same side of the table. We're in this together. We have a big problem to solve here. Let's get it done as opposed to finger pointing and this kind of thing that can sometimes come about. So a very collaborative story is what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, And I love what you mentioned there about falling in love with the solution. I think sometimes we fall in love with the solution or we can fear the alternative, having to admit that maybe our idea wasn't the best or that we invested a lot of sunk cost into something that didn't turn out. And I and I think this is kind of helps leaders fall into that trap of thinking things are one-way doors. They're not really a one-way door, but I just don't want to open it again <laughs> because I was involved in closing it in the first place. And so, again, I feel like uh, you know, there's actually even a whole chapter in my book dedicated to this idea of giving leaders permission, acknowledging that high stakes business decisions are career decisions. You know, let's just acknowledge the truth. But at the same time, if you're creating, if you're installing hinges and you're pushing um, the organization decisions down in the organization and empowering them to move at velocity, you have a lot more leeway to absorb failure in your organization and in your own career. And the more you do that, the more you give your employees permission to do the same. And that, you know, innovation, if you knew it was going to work hundred percent of the time, it wouldn't be that innovative. You know, I, I joke that if you've come to the fork in the road and you already know which fork to take, you were not the first one at that intersection. Um, you are by definition, a follower. And so there's going to be some trip ups along the way, especially if you're on the cutting edge of anything. 
but you need to give yourself permission to do that. And again, lower the risk threshold to match the, the ambiguity that's in, uh, in the decision. And Joe, you can learn enough to confidently make a bigger bet. I really appreciate that that mindset, and I can see how this culture, as you you as the leader, you know, as I think as Sachin Nadella said, set the tone at the top and create this environment where you act as you speak, right? And that sets the tone for others to say, "All right, we're in this together. We can make this happen. Let's not fall in love with this idea. Let's work it. You know, let's iterate this thing until we get it right." Uh, I really, really love that concept. But you know, when you think about this, and and this sort of collaborative environment, how do you make faster decisions and, and still hold on to quality of, of the outcomes? Thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is being being clear about what you're trying to accomplish. And I think it it's a natural, uh, it flows naturally from that customer obsession we talked about, because I think a lot of decisions are implemented and the KPIs around them or the metrics around them are about execution excellence, not customer results. So if you want really great outcomes for your business long-term, your customers need really great outcomes. And so the more that you can align to that and, and see, you know, you might have to ladder up and there's certainly some execution metrics. If you're developing a new website, there are some things about that website that you're going to want to measure it at a traffic or conversion level. But zooming out, what problem is it solving for your visitors? And the more that you can stay attuned to that, then things like bounce rates and conversion rates have a meaning. And they have a direct result, you know, direct tie to the business results um, that we're all about. And so no matter what your function, whether it's marketing, like I've spent a lot of my career in, or operations or you know, finance, the more that you can think about how the outcomes of your team or business connect to the customer outcomes, the better the whole business will be. And again, it's another point of cultural alignment is as those things get implemented in the organization. And here we are back at, again, the focus on the customer, because if they don't want it, right, who cares? And if we're not solving a problem for them, why does it matter? And I, I appreciate this idea of you know, having metrics, KPIs, key performance indicators, uh, right? is part of the story, but if that's all we focus on, you know, suddenly our employees are now just checking boxes to make sure we check all these boxes as opposed to delivering something excellent for the client. Uh, I right. love that concept. Yeah. And we've all been part of organizations, I'm sure, that uh, have thin sliced the goals so much that different groups can be wildly successful in the business can be struggling. And, you know, I, again, as from a leadership perspective, the more you align to the big um, necessities of the customer and align to that uh, throughout the organization, um, you, you get better results. In fact, several of the people I interviewed for the book use an OKR um, framework, objectives and key results and kind of ladder that. So there's, you know, I the book isn't really about like how to do metrics management and performance management, but it certainly alludes to some of the best practices that you see in the marketplace about how to do that and structure it so that the communication and the alignment um, shows up in goal setting and shows up in the day-to-day work and the accountability that you build into the organization. It's, you know, what was, there's a quote about communication. I, I forget who said it, but it was something to the effect of the thing about communication is we actually think it took place or something like this. And 
Right. Your clarity is such a, a key element. And I, I love this, this thread that you're drawing between the customer all the way back to the leadership and creating that environment that has that vision that builds into that. You know, in your book, you actually, talk- actually a quick, a quick note about communication. One of the, the things that I, that I mentioned in the book is that um, leaders have not effectively communicated until they are so tired of the message that they're ready to gouge their ears out. I mean, literally, like if a leader isn't absolutely fatigued by telling the story again and again and again, I guarantee your employees have not heard the story. And and this is certainly true of large enterprises with multiple layers or, you know, geographic um, dispersion of their employee base. You know, you have to go hoarse um, saying the message over and over again. But I found even working in smaller mid-sized companies or startups, uh, talking to leaders of small enterprises, they found the same. They thought they had communicated something because they told a few people or they told their leadership team, or they even said it in an all-hands meeting and they thought, check, everybody's heard that message, but come to find out they had to say it seven more times or more. And I actually think there's a lot of parallels between the work that I've done functionally in marketing to the work that leaders do. And that is, it's all about reach and frequency. You know, it's saying the message over and over again. And if it takes, I don't know, 17, 27 times for a customer to hear a message and take an action, how much more so your employees who um, are needing to align in order to satisfy that customer. So um, it's it's a challenge for leaders, but one that I would encourage everybody to think about. If you're not tired of it, then no one has really gotten it. There is something magical about that seventh time. And I found throughout my career on Wall Street that at least seven times. And when I really knew it sunk in is when they would use the language back to me, right? They started to use the, the these themes that you talked about uh, that you've created and perpetuated throughout the organization. Once the language starts appearing from their mouths, then I knew, all right, we're on to something here. It wasn't time to quit using it, but now it was starting to sink in, right? Yeah. Um, you, know, you talk in the book uh, uh, about writing play into making and implementing decisions um, to deliver better results. What is that? What role does that play, Jennifer? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess I should say, you know, I'm coming I'm coming to this interview from a perspective of a writer, so maybe uh, by definition, I'm inclined to write, um, and that's always been a big part of part of my job. But I'll tell you, I had a deeper appreciation for the role that writing plays in strategy development at my time at at Amazon. Um, It's very much a writing culture, something I've since taken with me. Uh, So I know it can work in other environments because I'm using it in another environment at Learfield, but it, it forces a discipline of writing the idea down and um, something I've used in the past, something Amazon uses a lot is actually writing the press release for a new idea, a new product, before you write a line of code, before you do anything to implement the idea, sit down and write the headline of the press release. And if you want to really challenge yourself, write out a quote from a fake but representative customer. And and then build that into a full one-page narrative that describes the problem, the solution, how people would get more information, how people would utilize the solution, whatever that might be. And 
what that does is it forces you to really crystallize what the value proposition is, what problem you're solving, not just what the solution is, but the problem. And that customer quote, which seems like it would be the easiest thing in the world to do, forces you to decide who is our profile customer? Who is the ideal customer for this? What would their title be? What kind of company would they work for? And what will they say about our product that would compel you know, others in the industry to invest in, in, in this product, service, solution, business, whatever? And that, I find that discipline works not only for products that would be brought ex- externally, but internal solutions as well. Uh, you know, Process improvements and that kind of thing can be written in the same way. And at Amazon, we took it a step further, which was we would start meetings with a doc read. So literally somebody would bring that press release or somebody would bring a one or two or six page document to a meeting and everybody in the meeting wasn't assumed that they would have pre-read anything. We'll just sit in silence for 15, 30, 45 minutes until everybody reads the documents, marks it up online or literally with a red pen in the, in a room. And then once everybody has consumed the whole idea, then we can have a meaningful discussion. And what I found that that did, as strange as it was the first few times to just kind of sit in silence and all be reading together. <laughs> all <through> peers. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a surreal experience the first few times. But what that does is it leads to a quality of input and a quality of discussion that you just don't get in a slide-by-slide charismatic leader presenting PowerPoint. You just don't get there because people haven't consumed the whole idea and taken it all in. And it led to really interesting downstream impacts around inclusion and diversity of voice because the extroverts in the room can contribute, but so can the introverts. And everybody can make their voice heard either in the meeting by speaking up or by, you know, listing questions or ideas or corrections in the document and giving back that to the author. And plus, anybody could author a document. So ideas didn't need to come just from the top. They could come from anywhere and be bubbled up in the organization. And so that imprinted on me powerfully. And now um, I, I'm sure my colleagues now kind of chuckle when they say, oh, I'm going to have a meeting with Jennifer. There'll probably be a document where at least she's proposed something. And then we can talk about it. And, and in that, we can actually push things forward faster and we can get aligned. And then you have this document that describes what you were going to go do and why you were going to go do it, which is very powerful for like cascading through the organization for implementation and to course correct along the way, because you have then documented your assumptions. You've documented the problem. You've documented what you thought it would take to solve that problem. And if any of those core assumptions don't end up being true anymore, you have a foundation from which to pivot. So again, I I went from being cautiously like optimistic that I would like this writing thing about strategy to being, as you can tell, a raging fan of it and, and really feeling like it's a huge differentiator for companies who want to really implement decisions well is to force yourself to write, write it down. I mean, such a simple lesson that we oftentimes overlook, right? In this day of, oh, we're always doing a hundred things a day and trying to get it all done, but taking that time to think, reflect, write it, put it to paper, and then you have to read it out loud and say, does this still make sense, right? And getting everyone in that room. I love that idea because 
you know, so many times you show up at these meetings and, you know, maybe one person skimmed it on the subway on the way in or, you know, on their commute or whatever, and didn't necessarily absorb it. So it forces you all to absorb it and really engage in that conversation. And uh, I love that you carried this forward. There were so many leadership lessons in there, uh, Jennifer, that you shared. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, you talked earlier about this concept of, of, of I, I think, safety and, and truth and honesty. And, you know, you say the top leaders in the company need to work hard to be told the truth. You know, how do you help leaders or advise leaders to cultivate that candor in organizations so conversations like the one you just described or exercises like the one you just described can effectively take place? Yeah, um, I think that it's a it's a fundamental truth that people probably, especially those who might be listening that are earlier in their career might not fully appreciate, but it is hard for senior leaders to be told the truth. Uh, often they have to um, they have to work hard to get people to really disclose what's happening in the organization or give them kind of an unvarnished picture. And it's I, I hope it's not that anybody intends to lie or mislead or you know there's unethical things going on. It's just that everybody. Um, wants to uh, propel the leader's vision and be part of the team. And it's difficult to introduce conflict or to be the one to deliver a tough message. But I encourage everybody to have, yeah, everybody should have that backbone. And in order for leaders to cultivate that um, among their team, they have to, um, and we talked about having to repeat messages multiple times. So you have to kind of live out the strategy loudly in order to have it take hold in the organization. That is same. That is the exact same thing about cultural ch- change as well. If the organization doesn't have a rich tradition of speaking truth to power and um, having candid conversations up the organization, the leader may need to um, help facilitate that. Um, and I and I give in the book several kind of tactics that people can use. Um, one is just being vocal about their own failures and and being uh, showing, uh, honoring feedback that's given in a very public way. Not, uh, you know, so I like just in my own experience, when people have come to me with a problem, I've thanked, thanked them personally with it. And I've asked them, like, how, how can I help? How can I be a part of moving this forward? Do you need help or are you just giving me visibility? If they need help, I actually make a big deal of letting people know that this was brought to my attention and I take it really seriously. And I consider it, a, you know, I, I admit to the failures on my part to make this happen. And what can we do about it? And again, let's put the problem over here. Let's get on the same side of the table and tackle it together. And if you just show up with that kind of humility, you're more likely to be told the truth. And then there's some other things that we can do to take the pressure off telling the truth. And one of the tools that I go into detail about is called a pre-mortem. You know, usually when people uh, engage in a project, especially a high stakes project, it's not uncommon for them to do a post-mortem or retrospective afterwards, a post-action report to say, what happened? Where were our assumptions wrong? What results did we achieve? I find it really useful and and enlightening to do a pre-mortem, which is get that implementation group together ahead of time with the strategy and say, if we are to be successful or if we are to fail, why? And fill the whiteboard with ideas. And again, what's wonderful about that is no one's failed yet. 
No one succeeded yet. So no one needs to be defensive. We can start saying it would fail because we haven't figured out the right value proposition for the customer. We aren't investing enough in marketing. We are, are beat to market by a competitor. Just throw all those horrible scenarios up on the wall. And then you can, as a team, prioritize the ones that are most likely to happen based on the assessment of the group. And then you can put risk mitigation and plans in place. And you can think of ahead, like, if this happens, then we're going to regroup and we're going to do this other thing. Or if if this, you know, if we're seeing um, this kind of results, we're going to watch it closely. And it might lead to having metrics that weren't on your K, you know, KPI or OKR list in the past, but they need to be because they are indicators of this risk that you put out there. So that pre-mortem can be a great tool to break down the natural defenses and to get truth to be told. So uh, again, I offer that as one of many solutions that can help. It's kind of ties back to this idea of writing your press release, right? Like, what is it? What do we want to see at the end of this thing? It, what it really makes me think of is a lesson I learned in sports many years ago, which is, I think I learned it from Jack Nicholas's uh, book on golf, which is, you know, visualize the shot, if you will, before you hit it. What if it lands here, lands there, whatever, and what are the outcomes? So how do we need to avoid this or that? And it sounds very much like that, but of course takes a much longer runway than hitting a golf shot uh, <laughs> to execute what you're talking about. I, I don't know. I'm not a very good golfer, so it would probably take me just as long. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other thing that I really appreciate about this, and you've touched on it a bit, is when you go through these exercises of visualizing the end game and surfacing, selling, you know, providing something of high value that the customer wants, it also allows you to then evaluate, all right, do we have the systems and processes in place to execute on this, right? Any thoughts or stories around that? Because I feel like you've you've touched on this, but I'm curious your, your thoughts on how you then take that lens and say, you know, look at the execution lens. Absolutely. And I've certainly been in many roles just personally in my career where I've had responsibility for implementing big pieces, whole parts of, of big corporate strategies. And what is interesting about that is 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 if you, you know, as, as Stephen Covey says, you know, begin with that end in mind and kind of work back from that press release vision, um, you do end up identifying the gaps. And so then what I'm hoping is that through the encouragement of this book, people put as much emphasis on building those implementation systems. So I've certainly seen places where a big vision like lacked people, lacked, lacked process, lacked infrastructure. We didn't have the system. We couldn't do the software. Like, and and what what that becomes is uh, another illustration that is kind of throughout this book, and that is decisions lead to decisions. So you have this big corporate strategy, but then it boils down to what's our marketing piece of that, for instance. And ooh, we don't have a mechanism to pass leads to sales in the way that we would like, or we don't have a mechanism to communicate to customers in the way we would like or whatever. And so then you're like, okay, how can we install install a hinge on that decision? Do we hold the thing until we can have the big bang solution? Or do we do a manual process as we're learning how to do that? And then we're going to grow it. So you find that same kind of mindset works at the top level of the organization and at every level in the organization, as people think about how do I solve this problem? How do I move forward in a high velocity way with some key learning objectives in mind? And then over time, we can get it to scale. And um, that's that's what you see in 
high velocity organizations that innovate a lot is that kind of um, layering, if you will. And actually, it's it's interesting because even in the design of the cover of the book, which was an interesting exercise in itself, um, I tried to uh, illustrate that this idea that work streams come together into kind of a a decision point, uh, and it's illustrated by kind of a knot in the center of the book. And then from there, the work streams span out and it illustrates this idea that, um, you know, a decision doesn't tie things together and ensure your success. It actually is a starting line of a lot of work streams and follow on decisions and the, you know, army that has to be mobilized, as you said, and all of the results that can be achieved at, at, small and big levels are after that decision. And it was really interesting when I sent out uh, the cover concept, as I started narrowing that down out on social media and to my author communities, I got quite a few people who just saw the title of my book, Well-Made Decisions, saw the graphic and suggested, and again, I really appreciated the engagement, but they suggested that I flip it, that I make this messy process kind of come to a conclusion and then smooth out. It's smooth sailing after a decision is made. And I just chuckled to myself. I was like, I can't wait for them to read my book <laughs> because that maybe they'll realize that the only smooth sailing was in this you know, decision-making process where you could control some of the inputs. After that, it is the you know, the wild yonder of a whole organization implementing that strategy, making decisions every day and learning along the way. And so if decisions, the implementation of decisions feels a little messy, um, no matter how organized and buttoned up you are, it's, you're probably doing it right. It's never a linear line, is it, to get things no, from idea to finished product. And uh, I, I love this idea that you keep keep alluding to or talking about in under well-made decisions, which is, you know, one, having a process to make decisions and then permeating that throughout your culture and, and having that vision, because then as, as employees, some, so many times you think, oh my gosh, I've got all these things I need to do to execute my job today. But if something comes up, that's sort of a wrinkle for me, how do I think about it? And you can lean back on that vision and this decision-making process. So I, I find that absolutely fascinating and what a brilliant way to, to put it together. So you talked a little bit about hu humility, Jennifer. I'd love to get into uh, maybe humility for you. You talked, uh, we've talked about some of your best made decisions. Maybe there's another one you'd like to share. Maybe some, maybe you could share an example of some that didn't go your way. Yeah, I would say the common theme of those is taking your eye off the customer. Um, I've been a part of many, many product decisions in my career. And, and one that comes to mind as an example of one that had such promise um, but was was really misfounded. Um, I we were working on a product um, that was uh, in the home theater space, uh, bringing some new technology, and we had heard from our channel partners, uh, our resellers and dealers, as well as just industry press, that um, there was a need for a really high quality three D video solution, and we put our best people on it and very clever people who understand uh, optical science and understand video signal processing. And we invented really an exceptional 3D video product for the home. Awesome viewing experience. It was so fun to demo. People would put these lightweight glasses on and they would have this immersive experience. It was wonderful. Come to find out that wasn't really a 
need that customers had. <laughs> it was uh, something that wasn't going to be an enduring trend. And as a result, we put a lot of energy into something that was a great solution for a problem that really very few people expressed a need for. And that could have been knowable. Um, and so from that experience, I spent a lot more time deeply understanding the problem and before trying to solution it, which is hard to do when you're an idea generator person. Uh, me and many people that I've worked with in the past have been like wonderful solutioners, if you will, <laughs> but but uh, you can't go there. You have to really start with the problem. And uh, the, the more time you can spend on that, really understanding that at, at a deep level, you can advocate better for the customers throughout. You're going to make the right choices about interface design and pricing and the like, because you're going to deeply understand the context of the customer. So yeah, certainly uh, the book is filled with some success stories, I hope, but also some uh, learn from learn from my mistakes <laughs> opportunities as well. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that that uh, candid story about you know one that didn't work. And, and right. how did the process play a part in identifying that it wasn't working? Was it simply lack of demand from the customer? Or was it something you were able to identify otherwise? Well, I think for me, it was kind of a, a, a stark gap, a stark contrast between the industry accolades that we were winning and the feedback we got from people who had experienced what we what we were doing and the overall results of the product. And so and, and kind of the lack of, of customer demand to expectation. And to me, it indicated that people could appreciate it, but didn't need it. And I think there's probably, I mean, technology companies are prone to this, but other industries probably as well. This, you know, idea of there's a novelty to it, or it's a good, you know, it's considered a good idea, but there's a lot of good ideas that don't deliver great results. So how good were they really? And so changing the definition of the problem to be solved isn't just bringing something new to market or being innovative, but actually solving a real customer need um, is, you know, is the st- is the start of it all. Ribbons don't always equal results, do they? Uh, right? <laughs> so uh, true. Uh, so thinking about this journey as a whole, and Jennifer, you shared so much and so many great lessons throughout the book. Maybe a bit about the journey. You know, have there been any unexpected positive results you found just from the simple act of going through this exercise of bringing a book from idea to available online? Yeah. Oh, so so many. Uh, one is I, uh, looking back, I I was. I was confident but skeptical that it would be pulled off in this time frame. Thankfully, I had some, as I said earlier, some scaffolding and structure to lean on, uh, which proved to be very, very useful uh, to me. The work of my developmental editor and and different, you know, editorial resources made available um, by New Degree Press were instrumental in this. So I think one was just wow. Okay, <laughs> it can be done uh, even with you know, full-time job and full-time family and full-time life. Uh, you can do this thing if you're passionate about it. The second, which was an interesting surprise, well, interesting uh, um, observation that I made was I I wondered if by the end I would be tired of this topic and I would have like explored it fully and never wanted to talk about it again, like done that, 
you know, because I, I, I feel like I really like put myself through graduate school in decision-making this, you know, past year, not only reflecting on my own experience, but interviewing and reading and, you know, doing research. I mean, it's been an immersive, I've thrown myself into, into this topic of decision-making and now I'm coming out of that creation process. And I'm as in love with this topic as I was at the start, probably even more so because I've immersed myself in the understanding of the impact that it has, not only on businesses and industries, but on individuals and careers. And so again, I'm more passionate coming out of this than I was even going into it. And I I don't think I would have predicted that. The, the press release uh, early on didn't match the end one, I guess is what I'm hearing. Uh, the one you predicted <laughs> coming out of it, I might, I'm going to be tired of, of, of figuring out this decision idea. But in yeah. fact, it sounds like you've fallen more in love with it and that you've, and, and in fact, probably I'm guessing grown and found ways to make better decisions for yourself and your, and your, your company. That's fantastic. A hundred, a hundred percent. And even I've been at Learfield for four months. I've even found opportunities to apply the lessons of the book for some major decisions that we've made around branding and around uh, organization design. I've, I've, I've been able to apply, you know, the, the lessons that I've learned and relearned in this process, uh, you know, to, to my day work as well. And so I, 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 again, have gained confidence of the power of them because I've been using them myself. The applications are ready and willing to be ready, willing and able to be used and, and applied today. That's, that's fantastic. So maybe taking a step back from the book to, to um, kind of close this conversation out, which has been fantastic filled with so many great lessons. Is there, is there a key lesson or message you hope that readers can take away from this book after they, after they read it? I hope it's one of empowerment. I know that sounds a little uh, interesting because decisions themselves can have such an ominous <laughs> definitive uh, uh myth built around them, this myth of the solitary decision maker who is emerging with the right decision and the results are, you know, all but guaranteed because we pick the right strategy. In reality, it's an iterative process and it's one that's very human with humans, working with humans to get things done on behalf of humans. And so it has all the messiness that is implied in that. And so I'm hoping that Readers can read this book and be empowered to be bolder, be empowered to move more quickly, be empowered to speak the truth, be empowered to write things down, be empowered to um, advocate maybe strongly, more loudly for their customers and build that vocabulary, build that muscle into their whole organization. And I picked the title of the book because I liked the kind of double meaning to it. We want decisions that are well-made with great input and we made the choice and it was, it was a solid choice based on the information that we had. But in reality, decisions are made, they're crafted like somebody would weave a rug or create a piece of pottery. They're molded, they're shaped by everything that happens after that decision is made. And it's in the making of a decision where the outcomes lie, where the results, where the rewards happen. And what I'm hoping is that people, I don't know, get their hands dirty with decision-making and they can recognize that decisions are something you start and then you finish them. Like you would finish a piece of you know, furniture uh, by a, 
steps and processes and feedback loops and the like. And so, again, I hope it's a message of empowerment and people uh, can kind of step into their role as a leader with more confidence. A message of empowerment, understanding, and I'll say accepting that decision-making is a messy circumstance. It's never clean and as clean as you want it to be. But the fact that you've laid out a roadmap and, and a, set, a set of processes to make it happen, I think is just fantastic. And so many applicable lessons for leaders of all levels to take take forward and build and improve upon their cultures. What a great message, Jennifer. Thanks for sharing it. If people want to learn more about you in, in their book, where might they go? So I have a website at wellmadedecisions.com. I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter. Um, and I, I know you'll share out some of the handles and, and those are on the website as well. Um, that's a great, the website is a great place to learn not only about the book and stay current to the latest uh, information about publishing, but there's a blog on there where I share part of this author journey. And uh, I even have a resources section with other books and blogs and resources that have been inspirational to me in this topic of decision-making. So I encourage everybody to be a, not only a practitioner, but a student uh, of decision-making. So uh, hopefully those things are useful to, to others as they've been to me. Just to uh, never stop learning, right? Just keep, keep <laughs> growing and learning. Jennifer Davis, author of Well-Made Decisions, Pro Tips for Finishing the Decisions You Start, will be available early September 2021, wherever you buy books online. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your stories. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I'm your host, John Saunders. Keep moving forward.